This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Andrew Clyden and I'm joined today by Deb Fitzgerald, writer and editor for The Pulse. How's it going, Deb? Oh, it's going great, Andrew. How are you? I'm doing well. It's good to talk to you again. Have a, a couple of interesting stories to jump into this week. Some of the stuff that you have been working on. It's nice to get a break from Miles all the time and to, <laughs> to check in on the, the stories that you are working on. So I, I think we'll just kind of jump right in and, and go through a couple of things. Uh, some smaller stories, some updates, and then some bigger stuff too that we can talk about uh, as we go along, I think the the first one that we should kind of do an update on is Potawatomi Tower. Okay. So uh, I'm sure everybody has been following the story there for a while. What's the newest development in Potawatomi Tower? Well, really, the newest development is uh, that the Sturgeon Bay Historical Society Foundation has applied for historic status for the building. So it wants it to be listed on the National Register of Historic Places. So it did finally file that application a couple of weeks ago. And that is one of the tools that that organization is using to try and help save the tower. One thing that I think is really interesting in regards to Badawanami Tower is just the juxtaposition in the the difference in tactics in trying to save it from Eagle Tower. Hmm. We've never talked about this on the podcast before. Miles and I have gone over it before, but what what are your thoughts just on the on the differing tactics? Eagle Tower, of course, completely taken down and is going to be built up in a completely new design. Potawatomi right. Tower, they are are fighting to try to protect and preserve it as much as possible in its original state, reinforcing it, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. What's your what's your opinion on the journey that these two powers have taken so far? Well, I wasn't here for the Eagle Tower journey, so that is a little bit difficult for me to answer. Um, what, I, what I do know about it is, and this is kind of an interesting fact that I learned while I was working on the Potawatomi Tower story, is that Peninsula State Park and Devil's Lake State Park, the two, those two parks together produce 75% of the state's parks revenue. So they're incredibly popular spots. So I, you know, when they tried to save the Eagle Tower, because I understand that that was the, the first tactic is to try and save it. And then when um, they realized that that was not going to happen, Uh, There was another campaign to raise the money to create a structure that was accessible to everyone. So, you know, and it it cost millions of dollars. And so when then you take a look at a a park like Potawatomi Park, which is, you know, not as uh, as popular or as populated, you know, not as many people go to that park as to Peninsula State Park, then you have to wonder, well, you know, what kind of political will will there be to um, try and and save that structure in place. And I think really what happened in this case, my perception of it is that what was what happened for Eagle Tower is kind of been transferred over to Potawatomi Tower. And that was the position that the state decided to take from the beginning. They were built at 
you know, the same year, roughly. And uh, Eagle Tower was in worse condition than Potawatomi Tower, however. So I think that, you know, just the treatment of the two towers was kind of the same by the state. And so I think they got caught that way when the Sturgeon Bay Historical Society Foundation decided to look into it and see if, in fact, the tower could be repaired without having to make any significant alterations or changes to it. And if it can, then it would not need to abide by new federal requirements. Right. And, and I think it's interesting, too, because when Eagle Tower was coming down, there was a huge fundraising effort. And it, it was very successful in raising funds for it. And Miles and I had talked during the time that, like, if Potawatomi Tower is going to go down, too, are they also going to be looking for a fundraising effort? And how successful would that be following Eagle Tower? Mm -hmm. uh, would it have nearly the same support just in terms of the demographics of the people who visit? Or would it just kind of, would it would it receive less donations purely for the fact that it's coming so quickly after another major fundraising uh, effort for the same type of thing? So quickly and and, and not as popular. I mean, that's, right. that's just a fact. And, and they have said, the state has said that it is, uh, committed to doing some other kind of of observation in that park, but it would have to go through the budget process, and they haven't really come up with you know something definite about it. I can understand why, um, after reading the reports on this, there are three reports done on this tower. Um, you know, one one report which was very much like the Eagle Tower report. And then another independent report and then a report to look at that independent report. So there are, th you know, there's lots of assessments that have been done on this structure. And if you look at those reports, it, it makes it difficult to understand why the tower actually has to be torn down. Sure. I, I wonder, too, if, you know, looking at the writing on the wall, if the decision to try to repair the tower rather than take it down was in any way spurred for like, what are the funds available to reconstruct the tower if it's taken down? Would that be a possibility? Uh, Eagle Tower's rebuild costs a ton of money. Mm -hmm. So would Potawatomi Tower be able to, you know, have the same fundraising efforts or, or achieve the same amount of money to do a, a rebuild or would it just go down and then be down? So maybe this is, uh, or at least in my opinion, this looks like it's a way to try to keep a tower there mm -hmm. uh, and and trying to reinforce it is is uh, a fungible problem. Mm -hmm. uh, in addition to, you know, the, the Eagle Tower teardown was really controversial. There were a lot of people who said it didn't have to come down. There are a lot of people who said, who still say that the new design is bad or that they, they don't understand why it has to cost so much money and be so different. But I, it's really interesting just to see the journey of these two towers and, and how they're faring uh, as they take completely different uh, paths to the future. Yeah, they may. I mean, we don't know what the future holds for them, but um, the money for the repair of the Potawatomi Tower is has is not an issue, and um, that has come directly from uh, Joel Kitchens. I mean, Representative Joel Kitchens. He said that the money is there to to repair the tower. The DNR's estimate for that repair is is far more expensive than the independent assessment that was commissioned by the Sturgeon Bay Group. So if, you know, one of my questions was, all right, if it's only going to cost $250,000 to repair this structure, as the Sturgeon Bay Report says that it would, then why not just let them do that? Why not just, you know, try it and see if that works? And the answer to that question was, well, we couldn't do that because 
we have to, from the state, we have to commission that report. We are the ones who have to hire out for it. So it's almost like if you're a citizen group and you are trying to help solve problems, it's not really accepted um, by the state if it's not that bureaucratic trajectory that they're accustomed to. Sidebar, uh, this that <laughs> reminds me very much of a story. My freshman year of college, uh, a student on my floor got drunk and kicked a hole in the wall. And we all got fined for it on on the floor. It was something like $250 a person on the floor to repair it. Hmm. So uh, feeling really remorseful the next day, the student went to Menards and he bought everything that he needed to patch the hole. Mm -hmm. And he patched it, he painted it, the whole nine yards to fix it. But then the the school came and was like, we're going to have to break the wall again because it needs to be fixed by our people. <laughs> so even though you fixed it for like $15 or whatever, we need to re-break it and then refix it and then still charge everybody $250. Right. So I, it, I can see where that that is coming from. Like, no, we need to do it our way, even though your way might be cheaper and easier. Right. And, and solve the problem. I mean, and that's what you want to do. I mean, we want to be partners in solving the problem. And, and, that, and that's, you know, there's a tower that everybody agrees needs to be repaired. And that's the really sad part about this particular tower, because it's, it's in such bad repair, certain portions of it, that it may not withstand another winter. And, and so simply by neglect, as everybody tries to figure out what to do, you know, a big windstorm could just topple it over. Sure. Yeah. Anything else on Potawatomi Tower before no, we move on? I think not, but it won't be the end of it. I mean, they'll be uh, seeking that um, status and then we'll see what, you know, what happens by then. The DNR has said that um, it will wait until November and it's not saying that it's going to tear it down at that time, but it's not saying that it won't. Great. So. Uh, next up, you've been working on a story about farm to school. Tell me what that means and, and what you learned. Oh, the farm to school. That is, that's a great program. Um, the Southern Doors School District uh, received a $50,000 grant to enhance their farm to school program. And the reason why I think that this program is so fantastic is because it it allows school districts to reach out to local producers and to try and get more of that local produce into their school lunch programs and into uh, into their schools. Like the superintendent told me that only 2% of their budget comes from, you know, lo the local area, from local growers or local orchards. But in addition, when you get kids to um, grow aware of their food, you know, how it's grown and where it's grown and what's good for you and, you know, what's not good for you, being able to educate students, you know, at that at those early ages really instill some, you know, great, great lifelong habits or at least introduce them to some healthy habits that they could have. And because there are so many producers in Southern Door, then it's a natural place for them to be able to try and cultivate more partnerships with more of the agricultural families. And not only just for the foods, but also for future job opportunities. You know, family farms have it pretty, you know, tough at certain times, and this is one of those, um, but it can show them the different opportunities that might be available in their community. So right. it, it's a nice story. It's great that it's great that they got that grant. Well, and, and just for 
for how many local growers there are in Door County uh, and how important buying local and farm to table is up here. Uh, I had the opportunity to talk to like 40 different restaurateurs last year and so many of them really stressed how important it was for them to buy locally or to source their their food locally for their restaurants. And with such a big push for that on the restaurant side of it, like what a great opportunity to move that into our school system, right? Yes, uh, yes. It means that the kids are eating healthier. They're learning more about uh, their their environment and the, the different local growers up here. And uh, it, I, I think any anything is better than like the cardboard square pizza that I right. ate growing up. So <laughs> I, I'm glad to hear that that this is a, a program that's moving forward. There, and that's kind of where you know we actually you know we just bought our house a couple of weeks ago, and we had a hobby farm, so we had we always grew our own food and. And I am really, really, really jonesing for that kind of food. But we have the garden in now and the soil is very poor. So we have to do some soil building there. But yes, it is. I think that once once kids actually taste the difference, you know, between what they might get and, you know, somewhere else and fresh from the ground. I mean, I just don't think that that's an experience that everybody gets to to have and everybody should have it. Right. Uh, I, I still remember my favorite macaroni and cheese that I've ever <laughs> eaten was my school cafeteria mac and cheese. And I shudder to think what chemical was right? in it that made me love it Was so it much. that like bright orange? It was like- bright orange. It was kind of chalky, just yes. all flavor, completely artificial. Right, um, right. Again, I, I, I don't know what chemical is in it that makes it so good, but yes. it, it's it's horrifying to and think it, about. And it gets people hooked. I mean, you that's, that's what you think of now when you think of comfort food. That's right. what comfort food is. It's that, you know, that chemical, that chemical stuff. Right. Yeah. Uh, one more short update before we jump into a couple bigger stories this week. Uh, Third Avenue Playhouse down in Sturgeon Bay announced their capital campaign. Yes. Uh, what are they raising money for? And what did you learn as you were researching that? They are really kind of doing a top to bottom uh, renovation of that building, which is wonderful. Um, they received a large donation and decided to proceed with their capital campaign. So they're trying to raise $3.5 million. I guess they are going to, I mean, they're they're trying to be done by next year, by next season. And it will actually enable, it'll give them some more seating. The, right now, they, they want to maintain that intimacy of the theater. I have not been in that theater since I returned to Dora County um, under the 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 current um, directors. Mm. But uh, I understand it's like a really intimate space and, you know, they use a a back studio that they had renovated for that. Well, they want to maintain that intimacy, but they want to be able to modernize it. I guess the the seat squeak and, you know, just little things like that. They're opening up the lobby. I mean, it's just going to be a better experience for the audience, um, kind of as as high experience for the viewing audience as it is for, you know, the performances that they're right. watching. But the one thing I think is, um, you know, really interesting during this period of time when, when social interaction, um, you know, is limited to none and, you know, we're all kind of pulled back and uh, not together out of necessity, that all of these different projects are going on. I mean, that one for 3.5 million, the West Waterfront project in Sturgeon Bay is going out to bid. A new company um, is expanding in the industrial park and they just sold that land. I mean, there are so many projects that I haven't yet like really wrapped my 
you know, my stories around them all yet. So it's, it's kind of interesting that I, when we come out of this, which we all know that we will at some point in the future, this, this development is still going on and places like, you know, Third Avenue Playhouse are going to have this, you know, brand new experience for people. You know, these things aren't just dormant, like things are happening in this dormancy. Right. Well, and and just think about how different Sturgeon Bay is going to look as a whole over the next couple of years, too. Like you said, the West Waterfront project mm-hmm. is going to be huge for completely transforming what Sturgeon Bay looks like. And I, and I would imagine maybe even shifting the perception of where you think like downtown is. Sure. Right? Yes. Uh, one thing that I, I mentioned on the podcast before is like my perception of where like Egg Harbor is mm-hmm. has shifted south. Like oh, yeah. 500 feet just okay. because of Hatch and One Barrel. Oh, right. And, um, the fireside and the puppet fireside, all of those cool things kind of came in all at the same time mm-hmm. and shifted my perception of Egg Harbor down yes. a little bit. So it'll be interesting to see how the the public perception of Sturgeon Bay is, because of course you've got you know Third Avenue and Jefferson Street and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I wonder if like you're going to shift that perception away from Third Avenue a little bit more and maybe yeah. more over to the West Waterfront. Well, and the West Waterfront has kind of a, you know, again, I've only been here for two months now, but the West Waterfront area has changed dramatically since I was last here. And it kind of has the has more of an artsy feel to it, you know, a more mm-hmm. bohemian kind of feel. I don't know. It, it feels very much like a, a, a bigger city neighborhood um, in the way that things are tucked into places like like I went to a couple of thrift stores, you know, down there over the last weekend. And I was really amazed at how how things have changed and popped up. So I think that this will definitely, you know, help that side and 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 just offer so much more in Sturgeon Bay because right. now there'll be both of those areas. Well, and even look at like the, the Parklet project. I mm-hmm. believe they actually closed Third Avenue down. Uh, and ha- turn it into this kind of like open air market for a night on Saturdays. Yeah. Yes. Um, so like that Saturday evenings, just for a few hours. Yeah. But that's that's still it's a it's a version of this proposed project that could have really changed the feel of that area on yes. the weekends. And it's cool to see the door opening a little bit towards that. Right. Uh, and and kind of gl- giving us a glimpse at what that area might feel like in a couple of years. And it and it doesn't and and that's it brings up a good point, Andrew, because it doesn't always have to be like you know you were saying Jefferson Street and Third Avenue. I mean, that is the downtown. And so, you know, people like to preserve those identities. But what's really cool about what is emerging now is that you can have different neighborhoods and different neighborhoods have different feels. Like when I was living in Chicago, you know, for 10 years, you would go to this, you know, this neighborhood had this character, this neighborhood had this personality. And then you would have these festivals in each of the neighborhoods that were different. And now Sturgeon Bay is kind of, you know, it's developing that with these different personalities for different sections of the city. And that's what people like. So moving on, uh, I've got two bigger stories to talk about here just to kind of round out the podcast this week. So we had talked a couple weeks ago about a plan to purchase police protective equipment. Yes. That's the tongue twister of the day. Yes. Um, and that plan was denied, mm-hmm. and it's come back in kind of a surprising way. I, I guess we had talked about potentially seeing it again in the future when, mm-hmm. you know, we weren't in this, you know, uh, this cultural moment of Black Lives Matter and police brutality and all this stuff being so pervasive 
on our social media feeds. I figured we were like, it'll probably come back when things have quieted down. But here we are a couple <laughs> weeks later, and the the proposal is back on the table in an interesting way. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, yeah, so it was uh, it came back uh, on the table because there was a donation from Adopt a Soldier, a local organization, Adopt a Soldier Door County. So they um, received a private donation and um, decided to put that to the purchase of uh, helmets and shields for the sheriff's office and also for the Sturgeon Bay Police Department and for Gibraltar and Washington Island officers. So um, it because it's uh, $10,000 that they would be donating to purchase this equipment, the oversight committee, um, the public safety committee that oversees the sheriff's office, they can't actually accept that. They, it has to be lower than 5000 So it is going to go to the full county board to decide upon whether or not they're going to accept that. But it passed. It passed the public safety committee. And so it comes to the county board with their recommendation. Interesting. Yes. So... I wonder what the the reception on this is going to be. I know that some of the big critiques early on were just the timing of it, number one, uh, but also spending that much money on something that people didn't feel was necessary here in Door County. And we talked about how the the reason for purchasing this gear isn't necessarily for law enforcement here in Door County. It's so that if mutual aid is requested, say in Green Bay, uh, that we would be able to send officers down there and they would have the equipment that they need to deal with whatever it is they're being requested of. Um, so that's kind of the reason for the purchase. Well, that's one of the reasons. Yeah, that's one of the reasons. It's not the entire reason, but it is definitely one of the reasons that the sheriff has given. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, I wonder I wonder what the, the conversation is going to be like now when you don't have that financial part as as heavy on the table. Um, any any insights in how this is going to move forward? Well, I don't know, because I never actually heard a financial argument one way or the other about it. I mean, it was always uh, the necessity for it from the sheriff's side and um, and how it's so inappropriate at this time. And why do we need to? you know, buy this equipment. And I guess only in the context of why do we need to spend more money on buying equipment like this? But really it was about the equipment and not about the expense from either mm. side. So on our, for instance, on our social media um, platforms, the there's there's been quite a few, quite a lot of feedback, but it's not it's not the feedback that we got last time um, saying that they totally disagreed with it and it was completely inappropriate. Now, a lot of the feedback has to do with how they want to be able to support uh, the local law enforcement officers. Sure. Yeah. So it's it's kind of, you know, switched a little. But I would anticipate that, you know, one thing that really hasn't come out much is, you know, if you are a private organization like Adopt a Soldier and you decide, you know what, uh, we really want to drive this issue, so we're going to donate this money, and in this way we get to, you know, have, if this is, you know, part of our agenda, then we get to have that agenda met. And I don't know, is that appropriate? Like, that's the conversation I think that, you know, probably should be had is, I, I know that the county accepts donations and gifts, but you know this one is is has been pretty controversial and to accept a gift like this over a controversial issue I don't know. That's a conversation that maybe will come out on the county board floor. You would hope that that would be the case because otherwise, 
any other controversial issue that comes up, somebody could just throw money at it and it just becomes a reality. The sheriff has already said if they don't accept this, then it's going to be in her budget. So she she is not backing down from this. She wants this equipment for her uh, officers. And so it will be in the budget and they'll grapple with it then if they don't accept this donation. You know, it's interesting that that the the things that really came up in the first meeting were, like you said, the appropriateness of the equipment for the location, but then also the timeliness of it, which is stuff that I feel like would be what the community is arguing more so than a board. You'd feel like the board would be talking about the logistics and the budgetary reasons behind it. So it's interesting that that kind of flipped uh, just in my perception of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then to to think about that 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 community response being so important in this issue. Uh, the fact that it's still going to be a budget item, that it's still probably going to be pushed forward. You would hope that it would be pushed forward quietly, or at least on, on the sheriff's side of it so that they don't have to deal with well, all of the, yeah. the, the vocal outrage about it. Um, but that's, that's not the case here. Now you've got two big stories back to back that are keeping people's eyes on this. I wonder if mm-hmm. that, that controversy is going to prevail throughout the entire purchasing process or, or if it's just going to get to the point where it's like, okay, now things have quieted down. Now I'm just going to make the purchase and hope that it, it doesn't blow up as this big community controversy. Right, exactly. And and that's probably ex- what would have happened. I mean, if this donation didn't come through and she, the sheriff, said that she did not, you know, actively seek a donation for this. But if it were just going through the budget process, then, you know, probably people would not be reacting in this way or they wouldn't have, they wouldn't see it as easily, even though of course we would cover it, but you know, they just wouldn't see it as easily. Right. So timing is definitely the, the issue here. I know the Sturgeon Bay police department, when I spoke with the chief there, he um, said that they would be accepting uh, the donation that he expected that they would accept the donation for helmets only. Um, he said he has no need for the shields and, uh, he said, you know, perhaps another chief, he's announced his retirement. He'll be retiring in October. Another chief might feel differently, but he doesn't feel that they need the shields. Right. And some of his officers already have the helmets. So they got them a few years back when, um, active shooter dangers were out there. So they already have the helmets and he wants to round off, you know, the rest of the officers with with helmets. So. Sure. Well, and the only reason that this went to a board at all is because of the dollar amount, right? It was $10,000. So therefore yes. it had to. It was an unbudgeted item. And so the unbudgeted item had to go to the um, the oversight committee. And the oversight committee then, because it was under $10,000, it needed to go to finance for approval instead of the full county board. So So what are the next steps for for this story? It goes to the county board. So it will be on the county board's agenda at their regular next meeting, which would be, I think, July 28. All right. Uh, one last story that I want to talk with you today about is is kind of a, an ongoing story, something that you're working on right now. Uh, we have been talking about masks and mask enforcement over the last couple of podcast episodes uh, following the Door County Board of Supervisors quote-unquote vote, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and you've been reaching out to business owners to try to talk to how they have 
proceeded in either enforcing masks or encouraging masks, what their story has been like in terms of dealing with customers, reception, all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about some of the the places that you've talked to and what their stories have been like so far. Yeah, well, um, the details will, you know, we'll have that in next week's paper, actually, um, that story. But we wanted to take a look at uh, the various businesses within the county who have who do have a mask requirement. If you don't have a mask requirement, then you know you're not obviously going to be dealing with people who are irate or frustrated because they have to wear a mask in your store. So we wanted to go to the business owners to find out how easy or not this was to actually try and um, enforce for customers and what kinds of experiences they're having. So uh, I've talked with a number of businesses. We're, we're doing, we're, we're kind of spreading out around the county. And I spoke with a number of businesses in Sturgeon Bay. And those that, um, you know, require masks, they, they have said that probably um, between 10 and 1% of the people who want to come into their store do not because they don't want to wear a mask. Some of them have received abuse Others have not, and all have said that they would find it far easier if it were something that uh, the Door County government would impose so that it would make it more uh, uniform across the county. So right now, if you have, you know, store next door, they don't require masks, and then, you know, the store next to it does, then... Customers are confused. Visitors are confused. Let's say, you know, Egg Harbor has a mask enforcement, you know, ordinance and Sturgeon Bay doesn't, then, you know, there's no uniformity there. And it it just creates more difficulty for the business owners. So 2A1, they all favored having, you know, even if it were difficult to enforce, having some kind of statement from, you know, Dora County government saying, you know, you must wear masks within our county. And it's so interesting because all, all signs point to a mask mandate being for indoor use and in situations where social distancing isn't practicable, practicable. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't be like you have to wear a mask everywhere. You don't have to wear a mask out in the parks or out on the water or mm-hmm. anything like that, or even just walking around. As long as you're able to keep a good distance from people, you can keep your mask off outside. Mm-hmm. It's the, the danger comes from when you are inside, when you are close to other people or when you're in large groups of people. And so A mask mandate for indoor spaces is almost 100% a benefit for businesses, Mm -hmm. right? So for the the county board or or for any board, state, federal, doesn't matter, to say, like, we're going to leave it up to the businesses to decide what they want to do. But then not giving them that that background support that that would help them, it just seems so strange to me mm. because any mask mandate is purely for the benefit of businesses. Mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah, in addition some. to the public health side of it, but like by by requiring people to wear masks indoors, you're helping pretty much every business out there, right? But that, of course, because it has become you know political, it's not just about public health. 
which it should be, as we all say, right. um, it is political. And so it's not, you know, some businesses may not think that it helps them. Some businesses may think that it hurts them. So to say that, you know, it's it's a 100% thing that everybody believes, it's unfortunately not. And right. so I, I'm not saying that it's an easy decision, you know, for our elected uh, officials to make, but you know, they were elected to lead and now we need leadership. And that kind of thing um, is is kind of lacking right now. Sure. So that is that is the missing element here. I read a quote um, and I, you know, I wasn't sure how I felt about it when I when I first read it, but it's becoming it's becoming more clear that it's kind of uh, accurate. And it says that if a, if a business is open, and you are dumb to go into it, then that is a failure in leadership. So that is, you know, we're all on our own here. Right. You know, and businesses are all on their own. And we're all trying to not be that way. And we need help with that. Right. Well, and I would assume that the there's a, a huge gray area just in terms of the the scope of businesses requiring masks, encouraging and non-requiring. So there's probably few businesses that are not requiring and few that are requiring. And then a ton in the middle that are encouraging it would love if you wore a mask, yeah. but don't know how to enforce it or yes. don't know what to do. Uh, what have some of the stories been like in that regards for businesses trying their best to get you to wear a mask when you come in, but not knowing how to do it? Right. And I and there is a separation there. Like some employees don't feel comfortable in the, again, it was just businesses that, that require the masks upon entry. But what happens is once a person gets into a store and starts shopping, the mask falls down. And so it's below their nose. It's no longer effective. And a couple of the employees said that they just don't feel comfortable going up to the customer and saying, um, excuse me, could you pull your mask back up? Some felt very comfortable doing that. But if you come into the store and you don't, and it falls down, then it's, it's like not wearing a mask in a store that requires a mask. So it's such a sensitive topic that, you know, the employees don't even feel comfortable, you know, correcting it. Right. So. And, and that's the biggest thing. It's like, how do you enforce it? And how how comfortable is your staff in confronting people about it? Because it is like, it, it's like anything where like, if somebody were to come in without shoes into mm -hmm. your business, and like, you'd have to be like, hey, sorry, you can't be in here without shoes. That's even something that like, would you be comfortable saying that in, in your position? If I was a 16, 17 year old working at a, you know, a, a retail shop or something like that, maybe I probably wouldn't feel comfortable being like, hey, um, excuse yeah. me, can you not? <laughs> Especially when it's something as, like you said, as politicized as mask wearing has been. Yeah. The, the people who don't wear masks into your business, despite signs and everybody else wearing masks, I, I feel like those people are more likely to get confrontational about it yes. than like... I, and, and maybe you have some insight in this over the people that you've been talking to, but like how how likely is a scenario to have somebody to come in and be like, oh, I'm sorry, we're requiring masks in the store and then for, for them to be like, oh, my bad, let me go get it. Right? Yeah, it, well, I mean, some people do. Some people say, um, th these are some of the comments that I heard from employees um, at, at these local businesses. Um, people have said to them, you know, you look really stupid with that mask on. Um, they've rolled their eyes and disgust and left. One person said that they were going to, you know, um, get their attorney. I mean, so there have been some, you know, really assertive, aggressive uh, pushback. 
But that again was, you know, just the few people, you know, it's not, it's not everyone. And if they don't agree with it, most of these businesses said that people just turn around and walk away. You know, they don't actually push it. So, right. yeah. But I mean, think of like smoking, right? So if it's difficult to tell people, you know, you need to pull your mask up, well, it's difficult because there is nothing that, you know, says you must do that. Right. You know, there is a time and not too long ago when people were able to smoke in workplaces and in restaurants and in bars and... Now they can't and they haven't been able to for a decade. But when that happened, there was some serious pushback to that. People said that that was going to destroy local businesses. They said it was a nanny state, you know, run amok. I mean, they said so much about that. And now look at it, right? I mean, you would never walk into a store with a cigarette. And if you did, any employee, your amicus employee would say, excuse me, you can't be in here with that. Right. Right. Because there's that support system behind them. Exactly. There's, there's laws on the books to do exactly. it. Exactly. And, and even without like a straight up law on mm -hmm. the books about masking, at least to have the, the support of the village saying like you need to do it, despite how enforceable it may or may not be. Mm -hmm. To have that support there I think is is huge. And one thing that I hope is coming down the pipeline for this is Walmart is requiring masks starting on Monday. Monday. Yes. And Target will be doing so on August 1st, which I think is kind of <laughs> silly. Like you right. can push it up two weeks. Right. Um, but CVS, Walgreens, Best Buy, Kohl's, mm -hmm. tons and tons of major retailers are now going to be requiring masks. Uh, and I think that without the federal support or the state support or even the county support behind you, at least you can turn to people and be like, hey, you have to wear a mask in here. And they're like, why don't I blah, blah, blah. And they're like, well, you have to wear a mask in Walmart. Yeah, so why wouldn't yeah. you have to wear a mask here? At least maybe there's that to look forward to of being like, if you can't shop at Walmart without a mask, you can't shop here without a mask. Yeah, like maybe yeah. there's some support there that people can hold on to. Well, I mean, certainly, because you do look toward the bigger retailers, you know, to 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 take some operational guidance from. So I think that that will help. I mean, it it absolutely doesn't help right now that they that they don't require it. But in, in terms of enforcement again, you know, we'll see what happens with that, but I don't I don't really think that that is the point. I think putting up the signs and requiring it is going to again get 90 to 99% of the people into compliance. Right. Deb, any other takeaways from this story as you're working on it? It'll it'll be in the pulse not this week, but in the coming weeks. Y um, yes. Anything anything else that people should know before we wrap up today? No, I think we have just about covered it for today. Cool. Well, I'm looking forward to reading this article uh, just to see what what the different businesses have been going through. It, mm -hmm. It's hard. I have some connection with my wife in Fika Bakery, so I like I, I know what she's dealing with over there and and how difficult it can be to ask people to wear a mask when they don't come in. Uh, but you couple that with with other safety precautions, right? With plexiglass, wearing your own mask, staying six feet away from people. You try your best to keep your staff safe, but the the masking is is not only for your staff and your employees, but it's for your customers too. And it, that's that's where it gets harder to, to kind of figure stuff out. Mm -hmm. And with the timing of everything, with cases going through the roof right now, it this will be an interesting story to watch in the next couple of weeks. And I'm sure that one week from now, we're going to be talking about being in a completely different spot than we are now. It's just the way that this has been evolving. I so. think so. And I don't think that it was ever supposed to evolve any differently. I mean, if the numbers were like this back in March, we would have all been in a flat out panic, right? right? 
So now we're we're more accustomed to this kind of lifestyle, but it doesn't mean that, you know, it doesn't mean the virus is done with us, not at all. And I was just reading a, you know, a story about the herd immunity theory mm -hmm. and how quickly um, that would take for a virus like this to actually get enough of the population uh, immune to it to be able to stop the spiking. And it depends upon the herd. So, right. yeah. Well, one last thing. Uh, that I want to mention too is like we, we talk about masking and not masking and, and whether you, you think that masking is safe or, or if you want to do it or not, it is up to you. But one argument that I heard recently that kind of stuck out to me as something that I hadn't thought about before mm -hmm. is like, like you can tell people that they should mask up for other people's safety all day long. But one argument that I heard for masking that was really poignant to me is like, if you don't believe that you should wear a mask because of your personal freedoms or stuff like that, or if you don't believe it, it's like, maybe you could at least wear a mask to prevent us from doing another lockdown mm. or to prevent businesses from closing. So Husby's announced yesterday that they're closed for an indefinite amount of time because somebody on their staff has COVID-19. And that's going to be the reality for a lot of businesses over the next couple of weeks, I would imagine. I'm afraid it's going to be. And we don't right. even actually know how many that could be in Door County right now. Yeah. Uh, Husby's was, was really great about being transparent and announcing mm -hmm. it. But that might not be the case for every business that finds a, a case in their staff. Exactly. So if you want if you want to support businesses, if you want to support Door County, like if this is a place that you love, and I'm sure it is if you're listening to the Door County Pulse podcast of all things, mm -hmm. um, then wearing a mask is the best way to make sure that businesses get to stay open, mm -hmm. uh, that we don't have to lock down again, that we don't have to stay home from work. That's the best way to make sure that we keep moving forward you know, in the way that, that we're doing it. Right. If, if you don't believe in the public health side of it or, or the civil liberties thing, maybe that's, maybe that's encouragement enough. Like I want to protect these places that I love. I want to keep businesses open. I don't want to sit at home again. I want my kids to go back to school eventually. I, you know, mm -hmm. there's all sorts of reasons why you would want to wear a mask even beyond the, the public health side of it. Right. So. And that, and one of the iconic photographs that we're going to get out of this time, Andrew, I think is, uh, when you see like lines of people um, waiting to be served, you know, for whatever food service it is, you see all of the staff with their masks on, and then you see this line of people, none of them are wearing masks. So it's the people who are being, you know, protective, uh, the people who work at these places, and then, you know, you see people being served without it. That just doesn't make any sense to me. Right. Yeah, it, it's definitely compelling. Of course, like wearing a mask while you're eating is difficult. Well, uh, yes, but, but this is while you're waiting for your food, right? right? I mean, so it's not, you know, you're just chatting, waiting for your food, you know, whatever it is. And yeah. Yeah, it definitely creates that like, that weird dichotomy of yes. like... Like, because of course you've got servers and people who are being served, but now it's like we are being served. Yeah, you know yeah, mean, these, right. Like, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're totally right on that. Yes. Okay. Well, Deb, uh, let's wa let's wrap this up for today. Uh, lots of really interesting stuff in in this episode. So thank you for coming on and chatting with me about it. And well, thanks for having to, me. Yeah, I can't wait to chat with you again. Okay. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.